Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. What an exciting episode we have for you tonight. But let's go over some other exciting news we have. Last week, we released an Acker Beacon Journal Ohio.com Ohio Mysteries crossover about the unsolved murders of Javon and Marcus Rogers. Be sure to go back and listen to that episode where we talk directly with the investigators. If you remember this case or have any details that maybe we didn't cover, send us an email at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Also, be sure to tune in this Wednesday where we bring you a brand new series, Ohio Mysteries Backroads, hosted by Michael Bonanno and Dan Zaleski. We are super excited to bring you a fresh look from two very experienced storytellers. As you all know, Michael has been a regular contributor to Ohio Mysteries as he runs a Facebook page called Too Late for Autographs, where he tells stories about the famous and sometimes infamous buried in Ohio cemeteries. And Dan runs a YouTube channel called North Coast History and Haunts, where he explores the dark history of the Buckeye State. We are truly lucky that these two are stepping in front of the mic together to bring you some amazing podcasts every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Be sure to check them out and give them the support they deserve. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist, who spent 30-plus years at the Acker Beacon Journal telling stories just like this, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Great athletes are most often remembered for their physical prowess. Fans can recite statistics and record-breaking feats, and hey, that's all they need to know. But for generations of Americans, the name Jesse Owens brings to mind much more than his four Olympic gold medals or his unique achievements in track and field. His role in history goes beyond the fact that he was one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century. In 1936, Adolf Hitler, who rose to power in Germany as the world's top white supremacist, 
presided over the games in Berlin, where he had to watch a black man shatter his theories about the superiority of the Aryan race. And he had to watch it over and over again. And in the game's most coveted categories, there's even more to know about Jesse Owens, the challenges he faced in his own country, and the mystery of what became of his four gold medals. This is his story. Thanks to the research of ClevelandHistorical.org, we know a lot about Jesse's early years in Cleveland and how his time in Northeast Ohio helped him cope as he shot onto the world stage. For starters, his name wasn't Jesse at all. It was James Cleveland Owens when he entered the world in 1913 in Oakville, Alabama. He was the youngest of 10 children born to Emma and Henry Owens. Emma and Henry were sharecroppers and the children of former slaves. In the early 1920s, they joined a great migration of some 1.6 million people who left behind the segregated and rural South for the industrialized cities of the North. The Owens family ended up settling in the city that shared the middle name of James and his father Henry, Cleveland, Ohio. And that's where James accidentally became Jesse. You see, his family called him J.C., but to the ears of a teacher at Bolton Elementary School, his southern drawl made J.C. sound like Jesse. The name stuck and he spent the rest of his life as Jesse Owens. The family first rented a house on Hamilton Avenue near East 21st Street. It was mostly an ethnic neighborhood made up of immigrants from Poland, Lithuania, Russia, and Serbia. Jesse made friends with the Polish boys, saying later that the color of his skin didn't seem to matter to them at all. His father and older brothers worked in the local steel mills, and young Jesse helped his family out by landing a job as a shoeshine boy at a shoe repair shop on St. Clair Avenue. But his mother didn't like the Hamilton Avenue neighborhood at all, feared it even. She rarely ventured from the house alone and kept the window blinds closed all day. When Jesse became a teenager, the family moved to East 90th Street, just south of Cedar Avenue. It was an enclave filled with middle-class and professional black families, and Mrs. Owens felt much more comfortable. It was there that Jesse met the man who steered the direction of his life. The man's name was Charles Riley. He was the playground supervisor at Bolton Elementary, but he was also the track coach at Fairmont Junior High. That was the school Jesse would be attending the next year. Charles Riley saw something special in the skinny, underweight boy. Riley had taken underprivileged youths under his wing before, and he did so again, bringing Jesse breakfast every morning and training the 13-year-old before the start of the school day. When Jesse moved to Fairmont Junior High, 
He was ready for the track team. He made an immediate impression. He took first place in the high jump at the annual Cleveland Athletic Club indoor meet in the spring of 1928. A year later, as an eighth grader, he returned to that event and won the high jump again, but also the 40-yard low hurdles and the 40-yard dash, setting records in the process. He went back a third year and set more records. Now, throughout this whole period, Jesse would only train before school because he needed the after-school hours to contribute to his family. He held a variety of jobs, including delivering groceries and loading freight cars. And he continued that routine as he moved to high school in 1930. His small income was needed more than ever because when he began East Tech, the Great Depression was in full swing. Jesse's father was injured in a car accident and he lost his job at the steel mill. His older brothers also lost their mill jobs as the economy slowed. The Owens family survived by merging into a single household, Henry and Emma, the children they still had at home, as well as the families of all of their grown and married children. They all squeezed into a single household to make ends meet. During this dreary era, Jesse remained a bright spot in their lives. He was the only Owens child not to drop out of school, and he was thriving at East Tech, especially in track and field. He strung together several record-setting performances in his first two years in high school, and while waiting for his junior year to begin, thought he'd try for the 1932 Olympic team. At the tryouts held that summer in Chicago, He did well for a high schooler, but he didn't make the team, which was already filled with seasoned and talented runners. But Jesse's time was coming. Everyone could see him getting better every day. And in his senior year at East Tech, he started getting some national attention. That year, he equaled the world record of the 100-yard dash at 9.4 seconds. It was such an impressive achievement, the city of Cleveland honored him with a parade. Everyone wanted to know where Jesse was going to college. And when he announced it as Ohio State University, it frankly angered a lot of black leaders in Cleveland and elsewhere. Ohio State had a reputation for its unfair treatment of black students. But Jesse had his reasons, and top of the list was that Ohio State offered him a job. He needed a good job. That's because Jesse was already a daddy. He and his girlfriend, Ruth Solomon, had their first child, a daughter named Gloria, while he was a senior Jesse and Ruth had been a couple since junior high school. They married in 1935 when Ruth came of age, and they had two more daughters, Marlene in 1937 and Beverly in 1940. They remained together to the very end.
Jesse also wanted to financially support his parents. Since there were no athletic scholarships for track and field back in the 1930s, a guaranteed job was pretty important. So Ohio State arranged for Jesse to work as an elevator operator at the State House in Columbus. And believe it or not, at that time, it was a paycheck that satisfied his tuition, supported his young family, and allowed him to send a little extra money to his parents. Now at OSU, Jesse was called the Buckeye Bullet, a name he earned by winning a record eight individual NCAA championships between 1935 and 36. But none of the success negated the fact that he was black at a time when America, even in the North, was deeply segregated. He wasn't allowed to live on campus. He had to live off campus with other black athletes. When he traveled with the team, he couldn't stay in the same hotels. He had to be accommodated at a blacks-only hotel. He often couldn't even eat with his teammates. He had to get carryout or find a blacks-only restaurant. Yet people idolized him, cheered for him, and waited for the 1936 Olympics in Berlin to come around so Jesse would finally have his chance at his sports top prize. In May of 1935, he proved he was the clear favorite when he competed at the Big Ten Championship in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and set three world records in the 100-yard dash, long jump, and hurdles, and tied the world record in a fourth event. And he did it all in less than an hour. It's a feat that has never been equaled and often referred to by sports historians as the greatest 45 minutes ever in sport. And he did it just days after being hospitalized for a back injury that he sustained in a fall down a flight of stairs at the OSU campus. Now, the calendar was moving ever closer to those 1936 Berlin games, but as had always been the case with Jesse, his race was going to play a role. On December the 4th, 1935, Walter Francis White, the secretary of the NAACP, wrote a letter hoping to persuade Jesse not to take part in the Summer Olympics. He argued that African-American athletes should steer clear of Nazi Germany or risk looking like they were promoting the regime. White decided not to send that letter after all, but there was already a movement in favor of a boycott. In the end, the NAACP coaxed Jesse into making a statement, and he did. He declared... If there are minorities in Germany who are being discriminated against, the United States should withdraw from the 1936 Olympics. Well, on the other side of this argument, dividing America and other Western countries, was the president of the American Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, who was branding boycott advocates as un-American agitators. In the end... America decided to go.
That summer, Jesse and the U.S. Olympic team sailed on the SS Manhattan across the Atlantic and arrived in Germany, contrary to what you might think, to rabid fans. James Louval, one of Jesse's fellow sprinters who won a bronze at the Games, said when Jesse first walked into the new Olympic Stadium, a throng of people, many of them young girls, were chanting, Vo is Jesse, Vo is Jesse, which is, where is Jesse in German? Everybody was waiting for him. He was a superstar. Just before the competitions began, the founder of the Adidas Athletic Shoe Company, Adi Dassler, visited Jesse in the Olympic Village and persuaded him to wear the company's shoes, making Jesse the first black American athlete to have a sponsor. Well, we already know the outcome of this. Jesse performed as expected. He won the gold in the long jump, the 100-meter dash, the 200-meter dash, and as a member of the 400-meter relay team. It was a quadruple feat that would be credited with single-handedly crushing Hitler's myth of Aryan supremacy. After the games closed, Jesse returned home to parades in New York City and Cleveland. Now, historians have tried to correct some misperceptions about how Jesse was treated by Hitler, as well as our own president, Franklin Roosevelt. And you might be surprised as to what they found. There seems to be no disagreement that the crowd of nearly 90,000 people gave Jesse Owens a standing ovation and a deafening cheer. Beyond that, reports vary. At the time, some writers contended that Hitler had snubbed Jesse that the Fuhrer had received all the track winners but Jesse, whom he refused to acknowledge or shake his hand. But others, including Jesse himself, said that was not the case. Jesse said after the 100-meter race, as he was on his way to the broadcast box, he passed by Hitler's box. Jesse said, he waved at me and I waved back. I think it would have been viewed as bad taste to criticize the man of the hour in another country. The writer in an African-American newspaper also wrote that he saw Hitler salute Jesse. Historians said, sadly, the leader who refused to acknowledge Jesse's achievements was FDR. Roosevelt was reportedly so fearful of offending Southern Party leaders that he refused to invite Jesse to the White House or even offer him congratulations. Jesse noticed this. Later that year, he remarked to a crowd, Hitler didn't snub me. It was our president who snubbed me. The president didn't even send me a telegram. But before you feel inclined to give this win to Hitler, here's what happened behind the scenes in Germany. Nazi minister Albert Speer later wrote that Hitler, quote, was highly annoyed by the series of triumphs by the marvelous colored American runner Jesse Owens. People whose antecedents came from the jungle were primitive, Hitler said. Their physiques were stronger than those of civilized whites, 
and hence should be excluded from future games. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, as I said, Jesse came home and was welcomed with parades and a surprise. In New York, Mayor LaGuardia greeted him, and then Jesse, so handsome in his three-piece suit, hopped into the back of a convertible for the ticker tape parade. During the parade, someone ran out and handed Jesse a paper bag as he was slowly driven along Broadway's Canyon of Heroes in Manhattan. Jesse tucked the bag into the car and didn't think much of it till after the parade, but when he got out of the car and opened the bag, he found $10,000 in cash inside. Best I can tell, he never learned who gave him the money. But for every kindness, there was also a slight. After the parade, Jesse was to be the guest of honor at a reception, honoring him at the Waldorf Astoria. But being black, he was not permitted to enter the main door of the hotel. Instead, he was forced to travel up to the reception room using a freight elevator in the back of the building. After the celebrations and that second parade in Cleveland, Jesse tried to settle into his new life. He looked for work, but found very few offers that were commensurate with the level of success he had just experienced. During his college summers, he had returned home to work as a filling station attendant at a Ohio gas station at East 93rd and Cedar. But the best he could do after bringing home four gold medals was an offer by the city of Cleveland to work as a playground supervisor for $1,600 a year. He was also hindered from making money by the U.S. Olympic Committee. You see, after the 1936 Olympics were over, the U.S. track and field team was scheduled to compete in Sweden. But Jesse returned to the U.S. hoping to capitalize on his success and make some money to support his family, his parents, even his coach. So the U.S. Olympic Committee, furious that Jesse wouldn't go to Sweden, stripped him of his amateur status and banned him from further competitions. Since Jesse couldn't compete anymore, commercial opportunities dried up. Jesse later said, After I came home for the 1936 Olympics with my four medals, it became increasingly apparent that everyone was going to slap me on the back, want to shake my hand, or have me up to their suite. But no one was going to offer me a job. So, he tried to start his own business. He opened the Jesse Owens Dry Cleaner store at East 100th and Cedar. 
but the business failed within a few years, bankrupting Jesse and causing a bank to foreclose on the house that he had bought for his parents. At times, he had to resort to racing against motorbikes, cars, trucks, even horses for cash prizes. Jesse later explained, People say it was degrading for an Olympic champion to run against a horse, but what was I supposed to do? I had four gold medals, but you can't eat four gold medals. Jesse eventually bought a second house for his parents, but two weeks after moving in, his mom died. Two years after that, his dad died. With little left to keep him in town, Jesse gave up on Cleveland. He landed a job in Detroit, a management position with the Ford Motor Company. He was assigned to the Civil Rights Division, serving as the liaison between black and white workers and an advocate for African-American employees in the personnel department. He stayed there until 1946, then moved his family to Chicago, where he opened his own public relations agency. But he still struggled to make a consistent living. In the 1950s, Jesse was at his financial rock bottom when President Dwight Eisenhower came to the rescue. He enlisted Jesse as a goodwill ambassador, and Jesse spent the next couple of decades traveling to places like India, the Philippines, and Malaysia, promoting physical exercise and America's idea of freedom in the developing world. In 1972, Jesse was able to retire with his wife, and they moved to Arizona. It wasn't until 1975 that his last track and field record was broken. His name had been in the record books for nearly 40 years. Jesse died in 1980 at the age of 67. No longer needing to stay in world-level conditioning, he had become a -a pack-a-day smoker and was for 35 years. It was lung cancer that finally took him. That brings us to the mystery of the night, the location of Jesse's four gold medals. Before Jesse's death in 1980, he reportedly said he had lost all four medals and the German government agreed to replace them. These replacement medals are in a museum at Jesse's alma mater, the Ohio State University. But what happened to the original four? Well, after Jesse's death, a biography of Bill Robinson, the entertainer better known as Mr. Bojangles, said Jesse had made a gift to him of one of the medals. In 2013, that medal was auctioned for $1.47 million, which at the time was the highest price ever paid for a piece of Olympic memorabilia. Another revelation came four years later in 2017, when an auction house called Heritage Auctions announced it would be selling two of Jesse's original gold medals. And here's the story they gave. In the mid-1950s, Jesse owed money for a stay at a Pittsburgh hotel that was owned by a man named Harry Bailey. 
When Jesse couldn't get enough money to pay his hotel bill, he gave three of his medals to Mr. Bailey. Later, Bailey used those same three medals to pay off a debt of his own. A man by the last name of DeVito had lent Bailey some money, and DeVito accepted the gold medals as payment of that debt. Reportedly, DeVito later gave Bailey one of the three medals back and just kept two. In 2017, when Heritage Auction revealed this story, they were selling the two medals that had been inherited by DeVito's son, Albert DeVito. Albert said it never occurred to him that the medals were worth that much until he saw the one owned by Mrs. Bojangles sell for a fortune and decided to cash in. So, one original medal went to Bojangles, then later auctioned to an anonymous buyer in 2013. Two original medals were auctioned by Albert DeVito in 2017. That leaves the whereabouts of one original gold medal still unknown. That being the medal that DeVito's dad had returned to the hotel owner, Mr. Bailey. It's quite possible that someone in Bailey's family still has the medal, or equally possible it has been lost. If there's an answer to this mystery, it hasn't been made public. I wanted to end this story of Jesse Owens with one other pretty important moment in his life. During the 1936 Games, the silver medal in the long jump was captured by a German athlete, Luz Long. The story of Luz Long and Jesse Owens was in the spotlight last year when the Long family decided to put their ancestors' silver medal up for auction. Luz Long and Jesse Owens had become fast friends. Long was the first to congratulate Owens on his triumph in the long jump. And later, the pair walked around the stadium together, arm in arm, posing for pictures. Jesse always commented that it must have been very brave for Long to be so supportive of a black man as Hitler watched from the stands. And not just that, but Long might have actually given Jesse the edge to win the long jump gold. You see, Jesse had fouled on his first two attempts in the preliminary round, and he only had one more chance to make it to the final. Jesse said Long came up to him and suggested he take off a foot in front of the board to assure he wouldn't foul on his last try. Jesse took his advice, survived the round, and went on to win the gold. Sadly, Long was killed during World War II in 1943. But the camaraderie between the two men is really worth mentioning as an example of what the Olympics were always supposed to be about. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.